Our second reading today from Corinthians, second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, there's this um, utterly classic line of scripture uh, that bears repeating. The love of Christ impels us once we have come to the conviction that one died for all, therefore all have died. He indeed died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So many phrases in scripture that kind of sum up everything that we believe as Christians, the whole gospel message. This is one that if you pull apart the different threads, um, is so illuminating for how we are to live and what we we are to believe. Um, This idea that since one died for all, all have died. You maybe heard it said elsewhere in Paul, this is a a common reading at Wakes, um, that do you not know that you who were baptized were baptized into his death? There's something about um, baptism and the death of Christ that are connected. And for me, when I, I've ever I've heard that and reflected on it, it's kind of strange because I was baptized as a baby, just moments, you know, relatively speaking, after I was brought into life, into birth, that's when I supposedly died in Christ and was made a new creation. I was barely getting started, and that's the case for most of us. So how does it make sense that this baby has now died with Christ and now is a new creation, is a child of God, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet that is what we believe. It's more obvious maybe when, when adults get baptized and they, they leave behind an, an old life, so to speak, they have some conversion and decide to become Christian. They take the vows. I believe in uh, God the Father Almighty. I renounce Satan. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, etc. And they take on this new identity. It's much more visible. But even if it's invisible, it's, it's still the case that all of us, in a manner of speaking, have died in Christ because we're a member of his body and uh, Christ in his flesh died for us. And so in order to share in his life, we have to kind of share in his death. But what does that mean? It makes me think also of um, something I've heard about soldiers in World War II, like that were, got called off and, um, you know, many thought for sure they weren't coming back and their families this same thing it was just this horrible moment um, when they had to decide to basically sacrifice their lives that many would come back many would survive but so many would not and who survived and who died seemed like such chance and um, I can't remember if it was Band of Brothers or some other World War II story I read that the ones who were able to survive and to not go crazy with all of the, the risk and the fear and the, um, just the anxiety of going off to war were the ones that acted as if they were already dead. You know, like they, they just said, well, I'm going to die, so I might as well be brave. And that was what was able to get them out of their foxholes and run into battle and to fight for their brothers and uh, for their country. Um, so there, there's some, we, even practically speaking, we, we have some experience of this uh, detachment from life that is, makes you more able to live, makes you more courageous, more self-giving, um, because you're not so attached to this self-preservation instinct. You're able to, to kind of die for someone else uh, and therefore live. Also in the World War II uh, vein, I'm reading a, a novel right now called Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. and kind of fo- uh, follows the story of this woman who was born maybe in the late 20s and came of age during the time of the war and she was just married and her new husband goes off to war and dies or goes missing in action. 
and she's from this small little town and and everybody in the town had someone that they lost in the war and the just grief came over the town like a pall and everyone knew that everyone else had some private sadness that they were dealing with on their own um, and yet they all banded together in a way because they knew that um, I'm not the only one suffering so they were able to go out and cook meals for and help the harvest of those families who also had lost loved ones someone you know, you know, even if you'd lost a brother or a son or a husband, someone else had lost someone as well. And she said, kindness kept us alive. It made us think of each other. And that's one of the problems with suffering is that it just makes us think of ourselves. And we can, we've all fallen into self-pity and we're the center of the universe and all the bad things are happening to me. Our first reading's from the book of Job and God is trying to get him out of that um, by having him think about all of the other things in the cosmos and how they work. And you're not the only thing. It's not that God doesn't care about our problems. It's that sometimes our problems consume us because we're not open to the problems of everyone else. And then she says, this narrator of the story, she goes, grief is not a force and has no power to hold. You can only bear it. Love is what carries you, for it is always there, even in the dark. You know, sometimes we think about this grief or sadness or suffering or anxiety as this big force that's just pressing down upon us, but it's not. It's just this weight we have to carry. But the only strength, the only real force that can allow us to carry it is love. And love always breaks us out of ourselves. And here we find Jesus in the boat today, asleep in the stern. The waves are coming in, the boat's getting filled up, and Jesus is asleep. I love Mark's detail of on a cushion. It's like he's this little baby in the back of the boat just sleeping very calmly. And then they say, do you not know that we're perishing? He gets up immediately and calms the storm, says, quiet, be still. And all of a sudden the storm calms down. And in it we see, I think this story shows us two things about God. One is his power. We see in Jesus his power to calm the storm. That he can give comfort in suffering. He can be the one who makes sense of it all. Um, That Jesus is the locus of God's power, this one who created the cosmos, who made the wind and the storm. He can calm it as well. But we also see in Jesus not just calming the storm, but remaining calm in the storm. He is the calm in the storm because he trusts totally in God's providence. His, t- his tender rebuke to the, the disciples, sometimes I read it as like, why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? You know, like he's mad at them. But I, I imagine he was more this tender, loving teacher who says, why are you afraid? Don't you have faith? You know, can't you trust and and believe that God sees you in your pain, sees you in your distress, and wants to come and help you. So part of the problem is that we don't trust that God is either able or willing to help us. And that's why they're panicking. Jesus, wake up. Help us. Don't you care that we're perishing? And of course he cares. But the other problem sometimes I think is that we're so focused on our problem, so focused on our own suffering and distress, that we can't see that he already is helping us. That he is there in the boat in all storms, with the power and the trust. The other thing we see in Jesus, and this is not just in this story, but throughout the Gospels, is that Jesus came to die. He lived as if he were already dead. The reason he's in the world is to suffer for us. This one who died for all. He did not come to avoid suffering. That's not the point of his prayer. Although he does alleviate so much suffering, doesn't he? He cures lepers, paralytics, blind people, deaf people, cures demoniacs, um, raises the dead. 
He's here to, to heal us and to bring us comfort. But he himself is not here to avoid suffering. He doesn't call out to God, except maybe in the agony in the garden. He says, Lord, if you can let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. His primary prayer was always to do the will of the Father. Because even though he knew that included suffering, that that, that was the way to peace, that was the way to life, and that he was leading us. And his whole life was not about comfort or, or, or some other good, even earthly joy, but love. Love is the force that carried him to the cross. And it's the, the force that carries all of us. And this is why the first line of that classic phrase in scripture, Paul says, the love of Christ impels us. There was a, a uh, inscription at the top of one of the chapels at Mundelein that I used to pray in. It said, Caritas Christi urgit nos, Latin for the love of Christ urges us on, it impels us, it motivates us. That love is the force that carries us and allows us to carry our grief. And it also shows us that we have nothing to fear because in a, although it may sound morbid, but heaven, for heaven's sake, we have a cross in every church. We wear them around our necks. We are, we're living as if we're already dead. We know that only in Christ's death do we have life. And so we have, no fear. We have, have nothing to fear, um, even death. And if we have died in Christ, um, then let us no longer live for ourselves, as St. Paul says, but let us live for the one who died for our sake. 